0: Good evening, hello, and welcome. You're listening to People Powered Radio 2 FM, 98.3. The program is Subject ACT, and I'm Sophie Singh. It's wonderful to have your company.
1: Tonight, our program looks at the situation for Sri Lankan Tamils. We begin with an update on a young family. Priya, Nadez, and their two little girls are once again the sole prisoners in the Christmas Island detention centre.
0: Our guest today is Angela Fredericks. Angela is leading the campaign, Home to Billow, to free a family being held in immigration detention and to bring them back to their home and their community in the Queensland town of Billowheela. Angela, thanks for speaking with Subject ACT again and for giving us your time.
2: Thanks for having me. Angela,
0: it's been two years this month, on March the 5th, that Priya Nadez and their two girls, Kopika and Tanika, have been locked up in immigration detention. Firstly, in a Melbourne detention centre and since August last year in the Christmas Island Detention Centre. You recently travelled to Christmas Island to visit the family. How are Priya and Nadez doing? How are they coping with that prolonged detention?
2: Mm. It was such a bittersweet week that I spent with them. You could physically see the strain that this time has had on them. However, whenever you try to, you know, start to say some of that stuff, Priya would quickly stop you and say, this is a happy week. Let's have a happy week. So they're feeling so lonely Copica now goes to school, so at least she's having some normality. But the rest of them, they're craving just human contact, conversations, you know, simple things like hugs that we so take for granted. Yes.
0: Is there much phone contact that you can have with them from the mainland?
2: So we do have phone reception. It can be a bit spotty. I know in their actual bedroom they don't have any phone reception. Yet mercifully we do get to have those conversations. However we don't get to do FaceTime or those face-to-face calls.
0: And it's no substitute for actual human contact.
2: Oh of course.
0: So physically you can see the toll that it's taken on Priya and Nadez.
2: Oh definitely. Just Oh, they're beautiful, beautiful full faces that they once had. Oh, you can see it in eyes. You really yeah. can. And Priya, she has got a shoulder injury from the forced deportation yeah. six months ago. So even when we were there, that was bandaged up.
0: That's a long time to be carrying an injury.
2: Oh, definitely. No. And just little things like, you know, she can't pick up the girls. She's not meant to no, lift okay. them. It's really quite horrible knowing that that was done by our government's hands
0: physically. Angela, their physical surroundings has much changed in that regard. Are they able to have any level of control over their day-to-day life? Are they able to cook? Do they have access to a kitchen?
2: So the family finally now cook all their own meals. So the food does get delivered. Obviously, it's restricted what they get, but luckily Priya can now at least cook, you know, what the girls are used to and what they enjoy. In terms of, control over their day-to-day. They really don't have much option there. They're very much just stuck in the detention centre itself. They've got their bedroom, which is a queen bed that they all share, which is quite horrendous. They then have their small little lounge area and kitchenette. Luckily, oh, I shouldn't say luckily, you know, it's, it's a right. They do get to go to the recreation centre a couple of times a week where they've got access to some little kids' bikes and yeah. books. So that sort of breaks up the monotony for them a bit.
0: But if it's only a couple of times a week, that's a scant offering, really. Exactly. So how do they fill their days, and particularly Tarnika now that Kopika's at school?
2: Yeah, so Nadez, there is a few pieces of gym equipment there, so he does do that in the morning. Priya says that she sends him off to try to um, occupy him for a little bit of time and then they just spend their time entertaining Tanika. It's quite lovely watching Nadez is such a softie with those girls. So, you know, he's on the floor doing puzzles. She's an absolute wizard doing all the puzzles that are there because she's done them a million times now. But very much their day is just there. Priya usually cooks up all their meals at lunchtime because the flies get quite bad. And then in the afternoon when Kopika gets home, they just keep playing and that's pretty much their existence is just trying to keep those girls occupied. I find it so amazing how well they've done to keep a sense of normality for those girls in really trying conditions.
0: Angela, when we spoke late last year, you'd mentioned that you had seen changes in the two girls, that Kopika had lost some of that exuberance and joyfulness and that that there were instances of anger around her situation and that Artanika was very clingy and reacted fearfully when either Priya or Nadez left the room. How are the girls? Did you see more changes in your recent visit, changes that you couldn't just attribute to the fact that they're just growing up?
2: I think Tarnika, there's still definitely that clinginess, so... She absolutely cannot have her parents out of her sight. She has to be able to see one of them. In saying that, I also have then seen what I would call quite an inappropriate attachment in terms of there's a real lack of awareness of stranger danger. So particularly they've got multiple different guards that are always on with them. And just watching Tanika does run up to sort of all of them now. So in terms of that kid's normal resistance to, oh, is this a safe person? That sort of has gone out the window for her a bit. With copycat... I think the thing that really gets me with her is she holds on to you, especially when she knew our visits would be over. She quite forcefully grabs you and clings to you. And it was on our very last visit while we were there, which just broke my heart. As we were saying goodbye, she said to me, take me with you. And I had to say, oh, you, you know, you need to stay with mum and dad. And she was just like, but why? Why can't I come with you? And so trying to explain to a little girl, oh, gosh, like, do it's, it's you ex- impossible. I mean,
0: that's exactly right. I mean, how do you explain the reasons when we don't even understand really, yeah. other than the politics of it, why yeah. this is being done to them? And it must be incredibly bewildering for two little girls to make any sense of that.
2: Uh, and, you know, another comment Kopika made to me on another visit was, why are there people always following us, referring to the guard? Yeah. You know, and you try to put that silver lining on it. Oh, you know, they're just making sure you're okay and that you're safe. She can see it now that yeah. she's going to school and she's associating with kids in normal life And she sees
0: that that's not the environment it. that the other kids are yeah, living definitely, in. Yeah.
2: Definitely.
0: What's the demeanour of the guards like? You were saying Tarnika doesn't have those natural reservations of people she doesn't know. How do the guards respond to her?
2: Look... There's a real difference among the guards so some of them they're very friendly. You have ones of those who I know they're quite aghast at the situation as well and so there were some that were being quite reassuring to us saying you know oh, we're keeping an eye on Nadez. You know some of them play cards with him. So you have some who very much are caring and then you've got others where it is very these are the rules you're not allowed to be doing this. You know it's that broad range we everything however I guess what I see is and I've seen this from the get-go even in Melbourne none of them can resist those two girls so Tarnika running up with a ladybug to quite a big intimidating looking male and them just sort of oh wow you've got a ladybug (laughs) so I think that's where at the end of the day these are kids yes they're normal everyday kids and they should not be in these prison-like conditions.
0: Of course, Angela Copika started school as you mentioned. What are the arrangements for? Her? Because she's just in one of the local primary schools, isn't she?
2: Yeah, so she's at the one school on the island. Right. So in the morning, one of the circo guards drives her down to school with mum or dad. Fortunately, the circo guards are not allowed on the school premises, so she has a day free. Basically. So she has some
0: sort of normality during the school day.
2: Definitely, yeah.
0: And it must be wonderful for Copica to have that opportunity to be in that classroom where she's playing with kids her own age and she's getting that stimulation that you get from being at school.
2: Oh, definitely. You know, just to see her talking about, you know, her friends, you know, as they do with that age, absolutely everyone's their friend. And she was so proud as well to show me her writing <laughs> and all those little things, yes. you know, it's just so lovely to see her developing.
0: Angela, what's happening with the legal... Processes And I know last time we spoke, the next step was a federal court hearing to determine whether a claim for protection for Tarnagher could be lodged. Where's all that at?
2: So they had the initial hearing. So we're currently waiting for the judge's decision on that. That was over a month ago now and we were told it could take one to three months. However, now with everything going on in the world, who knows where that's going to stand? Yeah, it's still just looking at whether Tarnika has had her asylum claim accurately heard or whether she's got the right to do a proper claim.
0: So has any claim for protection for Tarnika been considered or her need for protection has not been considered at all, notwithstanding the federal court hearing that happened a month ago?
2: my understanding, and I'll always just do that disclaimer, I'm not a legal mind whatsoever. My understanding is that's exactly what this case is based on. So was she given a right to have that heard or has assumptions been made? That's my layperson's understanding.
0: You reported government officials had prepared briefs to the minister as long ago as 10 months to allow Botanica's need for protection to be assessed. Why the delay? Has there been any explanation as to why there's been the most inordinate delays on the part of the Department of Immigration?
2: There have been no explanations given. You know, I think that's something that, as an everyday Australian, I do question just the complete lack of transparency that we see with the Department of Home Affairs. They have these extraordinary powers. They've got people's lives in their hands. And I think that there is such a blind trust that things happen accordingly and in the right manner, whereas when you start to really fine-pick and look at the exact details, it's very concerning.
0: Yes. Angela, you've been driving the Home to Billow campaign unceasingly for now more than two years. What's been the impact on you?
2: Oh, gosh. I think, honestly, it's the emotional toll. Like, there has, of course, been a financial toll, having to put my attention in different places, but ultimately it's the emotional toll I've always said, I'm here in safety. I've got my house. I get to sleep in my bed every night. And that's such a first world privilege, I think. And yet I'm so terrified for my friends. And, you know, even now, as we're seeing, we're all having to isolate and quarantine. And I think here we've got a family who have been doing this for two years. I think for me, it's really made me question who we are as Australians. It's made me question our government. It's really had a big toll in terms of where humanity is going and that really does scare me. However, on, on the same side, and I do want people to know, just seeing the amount of compassion and the love that is still within Australia, I think that does give me hope for the future.
0: Yeah, Angela, you mentioned that Tanika's a bit of a whiz at the puzzles because she's done them how many times. Is it possible for people to send toys, to send puzzles to the family? Like, can they receive those sort of packages?
2: It is. Anything can be sent to, you can literally say, the Tamil family, care of phosphate hill, detention centre, Christmas Island, and they do receive all of that. So while I was there, Priya and Nadez took great joy showing me all the cards they'd received over Christmas and, oh gosh, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. They were like pulling out specific ones and there was one where um, someone in Billiwilla had actually stuck in some gum nuts (laughs) from their tree here in Billow Mm -hmm. and just the excitement that they had that you know all these people care about us and that's where I think it doesn't so much matter about toys and clothes and that sort of stuff it's for them just knowing that they're not alone yes that's what keeps them going
0: Angela, you've consistently encouraged supporters to contact their local members and to contact the relevant ministers to urge them to advocate for the family. For people who want to do something, is this still the focus?
2: Definitely. The more pressure that we can put on our politicians to put pressure on Minister Tudge to use that ministerial discretion is definitely important. And we urge people, be kind. Our campaign is one of love. And I think there can be a lot of anger about this topic and we want to lead the way for our politicians to show them that we can have strong policies in place, but we can have compassion, we can have love and we can find solutions that yes. do suit everyone.
0: Angela, thank you very much for speaking with me for Subject ACT and for your ongoing work and advocacy for Priya, nades Kopika and Tarnika.
2: Always a pleasure, Sophie.
0: Thank you.
1: That was Angela Fredericks on the campaign to free Priya, Nardes, Kopika and Tarnika out of detention and to get them back to their home in Biloela. And the connection that Angela made between the current health crisis and the need or the requirement for us to isolate is worth exploring. This family has been suffering isolation for more than two years. Hundreds of people still trapped in PNG and Nauru under Australia's offshore detention regime have been in isolation effectively with declining mental and physical health for close on seven years. Is it possible that this health crisis might create a space where compassion can dictate our treatment of people who come to Australia by boat seeking asylum? If you've just tuned in, you're listening to People Powered Radio 2XX FM 98.3. And the program is Subject ACT with me, Sophie Singh. Priya and Nadez were among thousands of Sri Lankan Tamils who have fled their homeland over the years of conflict and since 2009 when the Sri Lankan military launched a final brutal assault to destroy the Tamil Tigers. Our second segment tonight looks at that conflict and its history. Dr Shamala Suntharalingam is the Women's Forum Coordinator at the Canberra Tamil Association. Dr Suntharalingam spoke at a public forum held in Canberra last October titled Sri Lanka to Australia from persecution to detention. Tonight, Subject ACT brings you Dr Suntharalingam's address from that event.
3: Thank you for inviting me to speak today. So, I'll start with a brief history of the island known today as Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, before European colonisation by the Portuguese, the Dutch and the British, was actually three kingdoms. One Tamil North-East Kingdom and two Singhala Kingdoms, the Kote and the Candian Kingdoms. Under the British, it was amalgamated into one island known as Ceylon. In 1948, the British gave Ceylon independence, handing it over to the majority Sinhala without safeguards for minorities, the Tamils, Muslims, and Burghers. Successive Sinhala governments soon brought in discriminatory laws. The first was the Sinhala only act, which made Sinhala the official language of the island, denying Tamils the Tamil language and those who spoke English, English. Buddhism was the foremost religion of the island. Again, Hinduism and Christianity and other religions not being so recognized. Indian Tamils brought during the British rule to work on the tea plantations were made stateless. Sri Lanka did not recognize them, despite them being the backbone of the tea industry and a big contributor to the economy of Sri Lanka, and India no longer wanted them back. University entrance was no longer on merit, and Singhala students needed less marks compared to Tamil students to get into university courses. Also, colonization programs into Tamil lands occurred, Singhala villagers brought with armed home guards were taking over Tamil homelands. Job opportunities were not equal, Singhala people were given preference for government jobs. Tamils protested for many years peacefully and often met by Singhala state aided violence. Many were killed during these peaceful Gandhian protests. In 1976, Tamil politicians stood for elections on the grounds they would fight politically for an independent state of Tamil Elam. The younger Tamils became frustrated, the Tamil politicians were not able to achieve equality and decided to take the armed struggle. Many groups formed, but it was the liberation tigers of Tamil Elam that became the dominant force and fought for 26 years for independent state of Tamil Elam. During the 26 years of conflict, Tamil civilians were purposely targeted by the Sinhala governments and their armed forces. This started in 1983 following the killing of 13 Singhala soldiers by the LTTE. Singhala mobs aided by the government went on rampage, killing and torturing Tamils and destroying their homes and businesses island-wide. This was the 1983 riots. During this time, Tamils fled the island or fled to relative safety in the north and east of the island. The LTTE, as the dominant Tamil freedom fighters, fought against the Sinhala government and its armed forces. The 26-year war resulted in killings of Tamil civilians, abductions, torture, rape of Tamil women and men, disappearances and extrajudicial killings. Tamil homes and lands were destroyed and people's livelihoods affected from farming and fishing. Schools, churches, temples and hospitals were all targeted by the Sri Lankan government and destroyed. People were multiply displaced and mass exoduses occurred. The school that was targeted and 53 schoolgirls and three teachers in Mulatiba were killed in 2006. And we know that there are several cases of rape of the women before they were shot dead. Tamils who could leave the island led by air and boat, now as refugees in many foreign countries seeking asylum. 2009 was the culmination of the war and despite no fire zones being set up to give safety for Tamil civilians, Sri Lankan armed forces purposely targeted those protected areas and in total it is estimated between 70,000 to 100,000 Tamils were killed alone in 2009. Tamil civilians who surrendered to the Sri Lankan armed forces were detained in camps. Surrendered LTT boys and girls were extrajudicially killed by the armed forces and prior to this tortured, raped and then shot dead. The families of the disappeared have reported that 20,000 Tamils are missing to date. Many more may not be registered. Even today, 981 days Tamil families are protesting for the disappeared since 2009 large army camps and navy camps exist in the north and east of the island one in three of the northeast population being armed personnel with 16 out of the 19 divisions of the Sri Lankan army stationed in the north and east of the island. This heavy military presence in the Tamil areas has resulted in many internally displaced Tamils, unable to return to their homes and lands to restart their livelihoods and remain displaced. Tamils continue to disappear, be tortured by the armed forces and rape continues. The military are involved in all aspects of life in the North and East, involved in preschools, schools, farming and fishing. Um, We know to date, from 1992 to 2019, 19 journalists who've reported on the human rights situation in the north and east of Sri Lanka have been killed. Tamils abroad protesting for the disappearances and demilitarization of the northeast are also intimidated. This was in the UK when there was a demonstration outside the Sri Lankan High Commission in London. Tamil protesters, even abroad, are under surveillance. So as I said, one in three of the population of the Northeast is military. 16 of the 19 divisions of the Sri Lankan army are stationed in the North and East. Also, because of the heavy military presence, Sri Lankan military have set up luxury hotels, they do farming, they have golf courses, and they are running the North and East. The high military presence is intimidating to civilians and continues the culture of fear amongst the community. White bands continue to abduct Tamils and they disappear. US State Department report that there is still impunity, arbitrary detention, unlawful killings, torture, sexual abuse and media intimidation. This was in 2018. Tamils peacefully protest around the north and east to ask for their lands to be returned so they may go home and restart their lives. Even this last few months, there are still incidences happening. Dr Rubin, a senior Tamil doctor investigating war crimes, has been arrested by the Terrorism Investigation Department and has been moved from northern Sri Lanka to Colombo. Even politicians are summoned by the Terrorism and Investigation Department. And even just this week, more human skeletal remains have been uncovered in Muladhivu in Northern Sri Lanka. There is clear research that Tamils who are returned from other countries due to failed asylum cases are arrested in Colombo Airport, presented to Nagumbo Court, and have to report to the local police monthly. The International Truth and Justice Project in 2015 and the US State Report in 2018 has clearly documented that Tamil refugees returned to Sri Lanka are detained, tortured and or sexually abused, and some have to pay ransoms to escape again. The Sri Lankan government and its army and navy are also party to the Tamils fleeing for safety. They take large bribes in order to send the boats abroad. Tamils abroad, as I've already mentioned, are under surveillance. Protesters in the north and east are under surveillance and are harassed. No war criminals have been brought to justice to date. The Sri Lankan government refuses to have an independent international investigation into what we call a genocide of the Tamils, which started in 1948 to date. Foreign countries such as Australia appeared to be blinkered to the Sri Lankan government even 10 years after the end of the war. It is not safe for Tamils to return back to Sri Lanka. Thank you.
1: That was Dr Shamala Suntharalingam from the Canberra Tamil Association speaking at a public forum in Canberra last October. And in November elections in Sri Lanka, former Defence Secretary Gotabaya Rajapaksa a man accused of war crimes against the Tamils as well as enforced disappearances of journalists and political opponents was elected Sri Lanka's new president. That brings us to the end of tonight's program. I hope you've enjoyed it. Tune in to Subject ACT next Tuesday night at 6.30 and every Tuesday. If you can't tune in, you can always stream us live or on demand at the Two X website, just go to twelxfm.org.au or you can listen or listen again to the podcast. Just search Subject ACT on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Good night.